The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Lord, thank you for this evening. It's good to see these brothers and sisters and a chance to walk through the Word of God tonight together. And I thank you, uh, Lord, for the perfection of Scripture. Thank you for its power. Uh, Thank you that you uh, use it to transform us and to make us ready for heaven. So I pray that tonight as we walk through Romans 6 and as we try to understand its power, uh, that you would lead me to say only those things that would be true and helpful in all of this as we think together. In Jesus' name, amen. So first of all, just to tell you, uh, some of you are very well, acutely aware of this because you're with me on Sunday morning in the BFL class. Um, uh, you're going to get what we've gotten the last couple of weeks. Um, you know, it's not a different Romans 6, you know, it's the same chapter, the same words, maybe a little different emphasis. Uh, you ladies have not been in the men's BFL class, so, um, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that we can do this together. Um, but these are the, the principles that we're walking through, so I'm excited. I love, I love the book of Romans. And as we're in the section that we've been walking through Romans, we're in Romans 6 through 8, which is the, the fundamental kind of handbook in the Bible on the topic of sanctification. Uh, sanctification is the idea of a progressive growth in holiness, in conformity to Christ that happens little by little um, through a cooperation between us and the Holy Spirit, a joint effort, a joint work that goes on. And uh, the evidence for that is very plain. Romans 6, 19, for example, uh, openly speaks of a certain pattern that leads to holiness, that progresses to holiness. Uh, Just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to to wickedness and to ever-increasing sin, the ever-increasing things, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness, leading to holiness. That's ever-increasing. So there's a sense of progressive growth in holiness. That's sanctification. Uh, The joint effort aspect comes very plainly in Romans 8, 13, and and 14, which says, um, uh, if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live, because those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. That's clear cooperation language. You must, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the flesh. So that's a mystery, but that's true. It's it's cooperation. Um, So we have... The beauty of justification laid out very plainly in in Romans 3 through 5, uh, made righteous by faith in Christ, justified through faith, a very difficult doctrine for us to understand and accept. Salvation by by grace through faith alone is difficult for us to accept. We want to do some good good works. Teacher, what good deed must I do to get eternal life? That's, That's how all religions are wired. We are told... The thief on the cross can go straight to heaven, not having done anything worthwhile with his life. Nothing worthwhile with his life. Criminal, right to the time they crucified him and then unable to get off the cross to do any good deeds, just believed in Jesus and he goes to heaven. Um, It's very hard for other religions to understand or accept that kind of thing. Um, but justification by faith is, is true, it's established, Romans 3, then Romans 4, Abraham and David were justified by, by faith, not by works. Romans 5 gives the, the, the benefits and the, the fruit and the assurance of justification. Then the Adam, the two Adams, Adam, first Adam, second Adam, Christ, the similarity, uh, federal headship, representation. Adam represented us at the tree and we sinned in him, Jesus represents us at the cross, and we are righteous and obedient in Him. All right, all of that's justification by faith alone through, uh, um, not by works. Then Romans 6 through 8 answers the question, what now? Now that we're justified by faith, what kind of life will we live? Can we just sin as much as we want? He picks up on a, on a little statement made in Romans 5.20 where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. You can't out-sin grace. I mean, sin is powerful, but grace is more powerful. Well, we always have that tendency to trade whatever good thing God gives us doctrinally to trade it in for sin, right? That's, we're going to see that again and again, even in, this, in these three chapters. So the question is, 
Should we go on sinning that grace may increase? Where sin abounds or increases, then grace... All right, should we, like, I tell you what, let's put on a full display of the grace of God in my life by sinning as much as I possibly can. That's, so Paul's taking that, that concept on. And, and the whole idea of what is the relationship between um, a Christian, a genuine Christian, and sin, that's what he's addressing. So what we're going to see, if I could just say very simplistically... Romans 6 gives the pure doctrine, which is the basis of our sanctification. He's going to tell us what is and how we should think of ourselves and live accordingly. And fundamentally, he's going to tell you, if you're a Christian, you died with Christ, you were raised with Christ to walk in newness of life, sin is not your master, you are set free from sin forever for the rest of your life, so that means there is no temptation that could ever come to you with absolute compulsion, but you are able to kill every temptation that comes. Not only able, but should kill all of the temptations and never sin again. That's Romans 6. Very pure. We'll walk through all that. All right? But then Romans 7 comes and says, all right, <laughs> wait a minute. I just want to say something. All of that's true. But, Paul, speaking for myself, I have found the very thing I hate, I do. And the good things that I want to do, I don't do. So even though I am not a slave to sin, I act like I'm still a slave to sin. And so I actually, in my mind, I'm a slave to the pure doctrine of Christianity, and I, and I, but in my flesh, I still serve sin. What a wretched man I am. So what you get is pure doctrine of being set free from sin in Romans 6. And then you get realism in Romans 7, how it's actually going to be. Doesn't have to be that way, but it is how it's going to be. And, and the realism is actually pretty comforting, isn't it? Isn't it comforting? Why would I say that? Why is it comforting that Paul struggled so mightily with sin? Are we just enjoying his failures? Is that it? Why are we comforted by the fact that Paul's that honest about his wrestling with sin? Because that's our reality as well. We have that same reality. And we could think what? If Paul's like, thank goodness, the moment I came to Christ from then on, I've lived a pure life. What, what, Jim, what would that do to us? That would be uh, distressing. Yeah. We would then think what about ourselves? Would you think you're a Christian then? If, you, if, if the result of Christianity is a perfect and pure life, and I'm not living a perfect and pure life, it's really pretty obvious then the conclusion I'm supposed to draw, which is what? We're questioning it. At yeah, best. at best. I'm not a Christian. And what then will you do about it? Either you give up or you're going to start doing works. And so that's where this realism of Romans 7 is actually very helpful. A genuinely born again, justified Christian struggles with sin. And I struggle with sin. So therefore, just because I'm struggling doesn't mean I'm not a Christian, all right? And then in Romans 8, he gives you, first of all, ultimately, at the end, by the end of the chapter, the promise of glorification. You're going to end up glorified. You're going to end up completely conformed to Christ. That's Romans 8. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, oh, he skipped sanctified. <laughs> He glorified. Where was sanctified? We just skipped over it. Went from those whom he justified, he also glorified. I have, I have thoughts on why he does that, but at any rate, it's good to know. We will end up glorious. This whole story is going to have a really, really happy ending. But before he even gets to that, he talks about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit at work in our lives gives us power to put sin to death. And he leads us to put sin to death, and so that's sanctification. That's Romans 6, 7, 8, very quick overview. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So let's now work at Romans 6, the pure doctrine of sanctification. Let's try to understand it, and let's walk through it. So it's 23 verses. Why don't we have somebody read Romans 6, 1 through, uh, 1 through 10, and somebody else 11 to 23. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism 
into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. But anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, Hmm. we believe that we will also live with him. Hmm. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Great. Somebody else, 11 to 23. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Hmm. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who once were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been free from sin, become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity or to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Awesome. That's tremendous. That is what we're going to cover tonight. All of that. Every word in great detail in the 40 minutes that are left. Some of you are shaking your head like zero chance. All right, let's just uh, walk through it, though. Let's start with Romans 6, 1 through 4. And we start with the foundational concept here in this chapter, which is our spiritual union with Christ in his death and resurrection our spiritual union. So the question in front of us is, shall we sin so that grace may increase? And so, in a larger sense, what is, the, what is the understanding, how shall we understand ongoing sin in the life of a truly justified person, somebody who's born again? That's the topic. All right? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? So, how does Paul answer the question? What do you get out of Paul's answer? What is the answer that Paul gives right away before he gets into all the doctrine? By no means. By no means. Uh, some translations give, may it never be. Uh, some more colloquial translations go with God forbid. I think if you're going to, in a Bible, translate something that says God forbid, you better have the word God in the Greek, but just a thought. At any rate, <laughs> you get the sense of it. What, is, what do you get out of that answer? May it never be, uh, you know, by no means and all that. How, what do you see in that answer? A solid no. A solid no. It's not just, eh, nah, probably not. It's a, an aggressive no. It's, an, it's, I would say, an emotional no. What do you learn from that? Well, the very thought is like glorifying Paul. And you get the sense it should be to us. We should get to the place where we feel and react to that question the way God would. It's just inconceivable. 
that we get to the place where we think about wickedness and evil and sin the way God does, that we're conformed to him. That's what conformity to Christ is, right? It says in, in Hebrews 1.9 of Christ, he has loved righteousness and hated wickedness. You, if you're a child of God, that's where you will end up in heaven. You will, like Jesus, love righteousness and hate wickedness. And how much does God hate wickedness? You can't measure it. God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. There's nothing but purity in God. So the initial response is like whatever we can do to destroy sin, to get rid of sin, to get sin out of our lives, that's what we should do. There's, there's no dallying here. There's no, well, if I could get away with it or now that I'm a Christian, how much can I do? None of that. Sin is poison. Sin is destructive. It's evil. I don't want anything to do with it. That's the initial answer. So you should think of it that way. Uh, just has to do with, with sin. You get more of this in Romans 7. Uh, Romans 7, he talks about the law in the first half of the chapter. And, and he says, I want you to understand, there's nothing wrong with the law. The law is holy and righteous and good and spiritual. But the law produced sin in me so that it could be seen that, that sin would be, this is in Romans 7, 13, utterly sinful or sinful beyond measure, that sense of that, that, that something as pure and good and wonderful as the law of Moses, the law of God, could actually produce sin in me, Paul says it did, coveting. Doesn't that show you how devious and gross and evil sin is? So that we might see sin for what it is in Romans 7, 13, utterly sinful. That's part of the whole work going on. So if you ask, like, why, why this process of sanctification? This is so messy. This is three steps forward, two steps back. I don't like that. This is so inefficient. If God would just glorify like 20% of us, we'd get the gospel preached and we'd get this thing done in about a year. Just what is this messy, sloppy, miserable sanctification thing? Do you think that God could just snap his finger over you in some sense and make you instantly perfect so that you never actually sinned again? Could he do that? Actually, he is going to do that at death and then at the resurrection. So if he could do that and if he's going to do that, dot, 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 what would be the rest of the question? Why doesn't he do it? Okay, well... I'll, I've got an, my own answer. I got many answers. But just in the wisdom of God, God wants us to have this stretch of time in which we, by the Spirit, are commanded to put sin to death and yet do what Paul says he did in Romans 7, which is pretty sad, to have all of these advantages of the new covenant and still sin. We are going to end up extremely humble by the time we get to heaven. And we will get the full education of what we wanted at the tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we'll know it in ways we never would have if we had instantly been glorified at conversion. By the way, just think of what that would do to local church life, right? Instantly glorified at conversion. That's like you don't need pastoring anymore. You don't, I mean, it's just, it blows everything up. You look at it and you're like, all right, I don't even know how that works. I mean, that'd almost be like the whole left behind thing where imagine if you were translated up to heaven the moment you came to Christ. Like, what happened? I don't know. I think they became a Christian, whatever that means. And there's no Christians left in this world. It just wasn't God's way. So a lot of reasons, but one of them I think fundamentally is humbling. I think every step of our salvation humbles us. All, it's just very humbling. So you are all here as humble sinners <laughs> saying, oh, God, help me. Help me with that. And I'm feeling the same way. I feel the same way. So that's my answer. All right, but initially, I just want you to see in, in 6.2, by no means, just swim in that. Just say, I want to get there. I know I'm not like I should, but I want to hate sin, God, the way you do. I really do. I want to have the same reaction so that any temptation that comes to me, I would, like, I would want to blow it up. I would want to come, come at it hard. I'm not going to dally with it. I'm not going to say, no, think about it. 
I want to blow the thing up. So that's just the start right up. But then he says this. I want you to understand something. Because he does say it in verse 3. Or don't you know that dot, dot, dot. Now, this is going to be a big theme on, in sanctification. You have to know before you can act. So all of this is based on sound teaching. It's based on sound doctrine. You have to think about these things rightly. So let me tell you the truth about yourself. When you became a Christian, you're united with Jesus spiritually. Didn't you know that? So look at verse 3. Isn't that about what he says? Don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Didn't you know that? Well, let me tell you that that's, that is, in fact, what happened to you. So Paul's telling the Roman Christians, he's telling us, what happened to us when we became Christians? Well, then what did happen? You became united with Christ. Now, let me stop and say, what does that mean? What does it mean to be united with Christ in his death and his resurrection? How do you understand that union with Christ? What does it mean to be united with Christ? It is a it's a deeply mysterious thing. And Paul says in Ephesians 5, it's a profound mystery. The two become one flesh. I would say the the most mind-boggling mystery in theology is the mystery of the Trinity. Right? How could we ever understand one God in three persons? And you must know that the mystery of the Trinity is not the threeness. We could conceive of three gods. I mean, there are polytheistic religions all over the world, right? So they, you know, the Romans and the Greeks and the Vikings, they all had a pantheon of gods and all and goddesses and all that sort of stuff. Uh, we could streamline it down to three gods. The thing is, that's not the teaching of the Bible. We're told that there is one and only one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So isn't that the mystery of the Trinity? How three can be one God? It is the mystery. We'll never really fully understand that. The oneness. So that unity. And we have become one with Christ. So much so that Jesus can say to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, Saul, Saul, what? Why are you persecuting me? What did, what did Jesus mean by that? Why are you persecuting me? What does that tell you? What's Jesus saying there to Saul of Tarsus? as he drags off men and women for being Christians and throws them in prison. What is Jesus saying? That they're just like him. Instead of... So Christians, uh, uh, anyone else? What is it when he's saying, you are arresting Christians, you're persecuting, who are you persecuting? God, but the Christ is God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so he's, you're persecuting me. So if you, yeah, he's the head, you're the body. So you can imagine like if somebody came and started beating on someone's foot and then the mouth of that person says, stop that, that hurts. Like, I'm not talking to you. I'm working on this thing down here. It's like, no, no, wait a minute. That's my foot you're pounding on there. I mean, we, it makes perfect sense. It's like you're pounding on my foot. Would you rather I pounded on your hand? No, I don't want you to pound on me at all. That's all part of me. That's the oneness. And so much so that in the sheep and the goats, Jesus can say, if you feed someone, you've fed me. If you've welcomed a stranger in, you're welcoming me. If you visit someone, one of my people in prison, you visited me. That's the unity. So when you become a Christian, you become part of the body of Christ. I've used, I use the word mystically on Sunday and somebody asked a question, what does that mean? So I guess I would just say in ways that are hard to even fathom, in spiritual ways, deeply, richly spiritual ways that are hard to fathom. And you don't feel like it. it's like, well, I just prayed a sincere prayer. I asked Jesus to save me from my sins. It's like, well, let me tell you what happened that moment. You became part of the body of Christ. Was, what does that mean? I can't even picture that. I don't know how that works, but it is true. There's a spiritual union now between you and Jesus. He becomes very practical on the issue of sexual purity in 1 Corinthians 6 when they were, you know, the, the Corinthian Christians had to be talked out of visiting the temple prostitutes. 
Stop doing that. Stop going to the prostitutes. Because anyone who has joined a prostitute becomes one flesh with her. Shall I take the members of Christ and join them to a prostitute? That's that same concept, oneness with Christ, now made very practical in terms of morality. If you go to her and you unite with her, that's like the two becomes one flesh. Almost like the, it is the marriage verse. You say, well, it's, I'm not looking at it that way. It doesn't matter. I'm telling you, if you're with her, you have taken the members of Christ and joined them with a prostitute. And she's serving Satan because the sacrifices offered to, to the gods and goddesses are offered to demons. So that, that whole thing. So that's the ethics of 1 Corinthians 6, of sexual purity. But it comes from being one with Christ. We are one with Him. The things we do, we are doing in connection with Him. Yeah, go ahead. How does this relate to uh, the indwelling Holy Spirit? Absolutely. That's how it happens. Because the moment you become a Christian, at that moment, the Holy Spirit enters you, and He is what makes you one. Um, yeah, could someone read uh, 1 Corinthians 12? I think it's verse 13. Just go, go I, th I think that's the right verse. If, For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. That's a great, I, so I got it right. Thank you, Lord. Um, so read that again. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Go ahead. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. All right, so now that brings us right back to our text here. Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can it, we live in any longer? Verse 3. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead for the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. Now, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, I think, totally tells us what this means, all right? The word baptized could be kind of confusing, especially to Baptists like us, okay? You might think for a moment that Paul is talking about water baptism here. He's not. Or else you would have to be water baptized to be saved. Do you see that? It's putting water baptism at a level that Paul doesn't. All right? Water baptism is important, but it doesn't save you. So now we need to understand what baptism is and what baptism Paul's talking about here. The word baptizo in the Greek from which you just get the transliterated version in English, baptize or baptist, all those things come over. It just means to immerse or plunge, like into a, a body of liquid. That's what it means. So therefore, I want you to know, however much we might dearly love our Presbyterian friends, when they talk about baptism by sprinkling, that's a contradiction in terms and simply illogical. All right? If you were into dyeing clothing, and you are told to plunge it in a vat of indigo dye, and instead you sprinkled the indigo dye on the pure white fabric, and then your employer came, and you said, well, I immersed it by sprinkling. Uh, what do you think they would think of your efforts? It's now polka dotted with indigo. Even then, if you plunged it, forever you'd see the polka dots. You ruined it. Well, I was baptizing it by sprinkling. It's like, no, no, no. They're two different words. You can't immerse by sprinkling. That's illogical. That's what baptize means. It means to immerse. All right, well, here's the thing. Let's try to understand the immersion. And it comes from, from the original baptizer in the New Testament. It was not done in the Old Testament. There's no baptism in the Old Testament. There's, there's a lot of rituals. Baptized uh, Jewish converts. Yeah, but it's not in the Bible. Not in the Bible. It begins with John the Baptist. Not in the Bible, in the 66 books of the Bible, it starts with John the Baptist. I am aware that we're told that in the intertestamental period, when the dispersion had happened and Jews were all over the place and Gentiles wanted to become Jewish converts, the men would have to be circumcised, of course, but they frequently would add immersion in, in water. That I think is probably true. I'm just saying it's not in the Bible. What I am saying is the baptism came with John. 
God sent him to immerse people, all right, to plunge them in water. He was doing it to Jews. And, and it's all the more powerful if this, what this brother said is true. If they only did it to Jewish, to Gentile converts who are becoming Jews, now John's doing it to Jews? What's he saying? You guys are as bad as the Gentiles. You're, no, you're actually no different. You're, you know, God is able out of these stones to raise up children for Abraham. That's about, that is what he said. Don't cling to your Jewishness. You need to repent of your wickedness and your sins. Well, they asked him if he was the Messiah. Are you the Christ? He says, I am not. And as a matter of fact, after me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering up the wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. As I've taught this before, Whenever you see the word unquenchable before the word fire, you should think of one thing and only one thing. Unquenchable fire is hell. That's what that is. Unquenchable fire is hell. And so John is saying, this one who's coming after me is greater than I am because of the baptisms that he does. One or the other. And that's how I understand it. You will either be baptized by this great person whose sandals John doesn't deserve to stoop down and untie, Jesus. He will either baptize you, immerse you, plunge you in the Holy Spirit or unquenchable fire. Now, I say unquenchable, even though he didn't say unquenchable the first time, he does say it a verse later. And so he's explaining the fire he means there. Should not think of the fire of cleansing or the tongues of fire that came on Pentecost or any of that. It's the fire into which the chaff get burned. All right, it's definitely hell. Jesus has the power to send people to hell. He is the judge of all the earth. Jesus is the one who says the terrifying sentence I quoted this past Sunday. Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Who has the right to do that? Jesus. John 5 says that God has appointed him to be judge over all the earth because he is the Son of Man. That's Jesus' role. He has the right to send people to hell because he judges with righteous judgment. All right? That's how great Jesus is. So now go back to the plunging. He, Jesus is great because of his baptism. He's greater than I. I'm only baptizing with water, John says. It's just a symbol. But the real baptism is the baptism of the Spirit. And Jesus does that. He plunges people. So what does it mean in that verse again, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for by one Spirit we were baptized into one body. All right. The spirit baptism brings you into the body of Christ. That's how you become a member of the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 links baptism to body. By baptism, we become body, part of the body of Christ. The baptism is not water, though, or else we would have to be water baptized to be saved. Right? You have to be water baptized to be obedient if you have opportunity. You can't refuse water baptism. It's a whole different matter. But what I am saying is the baptism that saves you is the baptism Jesus alone does, and he immerses people in the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? What does it mean to be plunged or immersed in the Holy Spirit? That's how we, through adoption, you get the sense of full, like full immersion means a full influence, the Holy Spirit around you, permeating you, in you. It's just a complete, full-on life experience to be plunged in, into the Holy Spirit. That's, it's an image that we have here, this baptismal image. So we're, we're, we're plunged into the Spirit so that the Spirit then becomes, um, you know, this major influence in us. But here specifically, he's saying, when you are plunged in the Spirit, it's the Spirit of Christ into which you are plunged, all right, and you are immersed in His death. You are immersed in His death. So basically then, you could say spiritually, His death becomes your death. You died with Jesus. That's what he's saying. Galatians 2.20 says it straight out. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. Stop there. That's it. That's what it means to be immersed in His death. 
I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But he says, don't you know that all of us who are baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We are therefore buried with him through baptism and death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You didn't just, you weren't just united with Jesus in death, but you were also united with him in his resurrection. And so therefore sanctification has a negative side, a death side to it, and a positive side, a life side. There are things you die to that you stop doing, you put to death, so to speak, and we'll talk about the difference between being, being dead and putting things to death. It's related, we'll get to that. But then there's the living side, which is a fruit, lifestyle, fruit of the spirit, kind of person you are, kindness, love, gentleness, patience, wisdom, Christ-like attributes. There's a life side to it too. Does that make sense? And so he says in 6.4, walk in newness of life. So that's the fundamental principle. The moment you came to Christ, you were united with him, uh, both in his death and his resurrection. So to continue, and that, by the way, is a sufficient answer to shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? Absolutely not. Didn't you know you died to sin and now you're living to holiness and righteousness? All right, that's how he starts, but he keeps going. Verse 5, if we have been united with him like this in his death, um, it's not exactly what the Greek says, but in a form of his death or a pattern of his death. Do you have the ESV there, Wes? What does it say? Or if we have been united with him in a death like this, okay. or like his, I'm sorry. Yeah, so he, he, he gives you one step removed. Our death is not just like his, okay? Thank God, because he drank the cup of God's wrath. He experienced that. We didn't. So he saved us from having to experience that. So we wouldn't have to go through that. But our death is like his. That's what it's saying. So, but through our spiritual union, we died a death like his. If we have been united with him uh, in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in, his, in a resurrection like his. That's what he's saying. So it's a similar resurrection as well. All right, so... In other words, you don't get the one and not the other. It's like, I'll tell you, I'm just going to go with the half. Now. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the dead part, but not the life. No, you get both. Praise God. So you were united in his death, and now you're raised in his, in his life. This is what we say, by the way, in our bap baptisms. United with him in his death and also in his resurrection, glorious resurrection. That comes right out of Romans here. And by the way, water baptism is just an outward and visible symbol of this spiritual reality. It doesn't do anything but it's a symbol of it. Does that make sense? So that's, what, that's what's going on here. But I know it's just so hard for us Baptists to say, this is not talking about water baptism. No, not directly. But water baptism does picture it. That's all. But these verses can't be talking about water baptism because it would put too much weight on baptism. All right, let's keep going. All right. Um, so we're united both in his death and his resurrection. Verse 6, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. This is a typical book of Romans single verse. It's like, this is why we don't get through much Romans 6. All right, this is why it's 710 and we're at verse 6. It's just there's so much dense doctrine here. This one verse, 6-6, six, six, is telling us multiple things, really basically like three things. First of all, it tells us that because of this spiritual union with Christ, our old man, Pelias Anthropos, old man, is dead. Not is dying or should die, none of that. Dead. For we know that our old self was crucified with him. So... Remember in a recent sermon I said that it was estimated that there were as many as 30,000 baptisms, oh, sorry, I'm sorry, 30,000 crucifixions in Jesus' lifetime. So how common would it have been for Jews back then living in Palestine to see somebody get crucified? I would think daily. This is what the Romans did. You're guilty, we'll crucify you. I mean, they just crucified, I mean, Jesus crucified two people with two people. There were three people. It was just a very common sight. So, yeah, so let's imagine that we had a neighbor that you knew or somebody you grew up with and you found out that your, your neighbor 
was crucified last week. Would you then ask, well, how's he doing? <laughs> Why would you not ask, was, well, how's he doing if he was crucified last week? He's dead. What is Romans 6.6 6 telling you? Your old man is dead, not is dying. He's dead. What does that mean? I don't know what that means. What is the old man? That's the question. So the whole thing here has to do with how God sees you. And simply, let's keep it simple. Does he see you in Adam or does he see you in Jesus? Who is your head? What side of that equation are you? If he sees you in Adam, you're a sinner and you're under spiritual condemnation. You're under the law. You're under all that stuff. That's the bad side of the ledger. You're, you're on your way to hell, all of that. Dead in your transgressions and sins while you live. That's if you're in Adam. If you're in Christ, the person, the man you were, the person you were in Adam is dead. That link is dead. It's like a citizenship kingdom issue, or you know, the analogy I used with the men at BFL was you could imagine a, um, a during the Cold War when there was a, a nation, the USSR, the Soviet Union, you could imagine a, a Muscovite, a resident of Moscow, Russian, born and raised, a comrade in that communist system, yada, yada, you know, a holder of a Soviet Union passport, USSR passport, let's say it's a, a man of fighting age, 22 years old, something like that. But in the course of time, he sees an opportunity to escape to the West, okay? Crawls across some potato field in Austria, something like that, because he's a hockey player or whatever, is able to get away for a moment and then presents himself to the government there and eventually comes to the United States and seeks political asylum and in the course of time eventually becomes uh, an American citizen, okay? He is now a citizen of the United States of America and is no longer a citizen of Russia, okay? So his identity as a Russian citizen is over, it's dead, it's done. Suppose he then receives a summons from the military authorities in Moscow to report for military duty next week. What should he do with that summons? <laughs> yeah, various ways of saying that. Pound sand. Or it's like, should he go? Do you think he should go? By the way, I think in my analogy, Christian sinning is like that individual responding positively to the summons and going. That's, what, that's how stupid that is. That's how insane it is that we sin. It's, that, it's actually worse than that. It's that stupid. But at any rate, that summons represents a temptation calling you to behave a certain way. That has literally no authority over you whatsoever. The old man is dead. You don't ever need to sin again. That's what that means. That's Romans 6, 6a. All right, but we're not done yet. Romans 6, 6b says what? We know that the old man was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be rendered increasingly powerless or gradually destroyed. That would be a translation there. That's part B. Well, what does that mean? Okay, well, then I, you have to tell me what is the body of sin. Is that different than the old man? It actually is. It's related but different. The old man has to be, uh, the old man is dead. The body of sin has to be gradually weakened. What is it? It is your body, your actual physical body, including your brain, and all of its tendencies and habits and drives and desires, its fatigue, its energy, its tastes, all of that, whole thing, all right? that didn't instantly change the moment you prayed the sinner's prayer, in case you didn't notice. Like we were talking before we started here about a patient that was addicted to cigarettes, spoke four packs a day. Wow. I don't know how there's enough time in the day for that. Got to have multiple ones going at the same time. But at any rate, there's, you know, I, I've never 
had this problem, but you know, I've heard it's one of the most addictive things there is. That person could pray a genuine sinner's prayer and come to faith in Christ, but they're still addicted to cigarettes. See what I'm saying? That's the body of sin right there. And they might know right away, this needs to stop. I need to stop. But they're still addicted. And so they have to find a way to turn down that addiction. And that's what sanctification is all about. All right? They don't ever need to sin in that way again, ever. I want to say, but they will. They don't need to, but they will. But this is Romans 6 and Romans 7, going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. They don't ever need to, but they do. Yes, but they don't need to. Yeah, but they do. You know, that's the whole thing. And that's the life you're living. That's why you're here tonight, right? It's like, I don't need to sin. I know, but I do. But I don't need to. That's true, but I do. Back and forth. The person's addicted. So all of that. And it isn't just the, the nicotine thing. Even if you never smoked, you're addicted to other sins. Any of you addicted to pride? Oh, that one's harder to kick than nicotine, all right? Next time someone criticizes you or speaks wrongly to you or whatever and you start getting heated up a little bit inside, right? Or you do something really nice for somebody and they don't notice or say anything and actually criticize you. It's like, wait a minute now. <laughs> no good deed goes unpunished. Yeah, something like that. But here you've got this body of sin, which is your physical body, with its desire for pleasure, a desire for freedom from pain, right? A desire to eat, to drink, to sleep, and for all the other desires. But they have been running amok and going beyond boundaries that God set up for years. Now you've got to render those tendencies increasingly powerless. That's the part B, right? Death by starvation. That's the, the strategy Romans 6, 6b gives us. Death by starvation. Wes, what do I mean by that? Death by starvation. It implies a long period of time. It's not something that happens overnight. But mm -hmm. that over time, if something starved, it grows weaker. And then eventually, yeah. it'll be at a place where it doesn't have the power to do what it did. Right. So you could imagine all of your sin habits, whatever they are, like rebel forces inside a walled fortress and you have surrounded it with superior forces and it's a siege, right? Picture it that way. And your strategy is you're going to starve that city to death, all right? Imagine two weeks in and uh, a delegation from the rebels comes out under a white flag and says, look, we're getting awfully hungry in here. Any chance you could send us just a month's supply of food? And, and water too. And you say, sure, we're a nice guy. So you, in you send. And all of your besieging troops are like, what in the world? That's the whole point. That right there is a picture of Christian sinning. It's about as stupid as the other one was. Because when you give your sin habits a meal, they get revived and strengthened. When you tell them no and stick to the no, they get weakened and weakened and weakened. It's what katargeo in 6b means. So that the body of sin might be gradually weakened, destroyed slowly, all right? So that, part C, you would not live like a slave to sin. That's the outcome. So that's 6-6, six, six. A, B, C. Old man dead, if you're a Christian, dead. Like, you don't have to kill the old man, it's dead. You are out of the dark kingdom of sin. You've been rescued from the dominion of darkness, Colossians says. You're rescued. You're out. That kingdom will never own you again. Praise God. But then B, the result of that is that your body of sin should be increasingly rendered powerless, little by little, death by starvation. And again, with that, I want to say, and this is what I said to the men on, on the last couple of weeks, there is no specific category of sin that you can kill so that it will never trouble you again, right? So take the, uh, the, the cigarettes analogy, or you could take somebody who's uh, alcoholic, right? Um, and they've put in 18 years now of sobriety. Will they be able to say, I know I'll never take another drink. I know that. No. Everybody's like, no, 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 don't say that. Why would you say that? Don't say, I know that I'll never take another drink in my life. They have to be vigilant, right? They have to watch over that thing. 
They have to not be idiots. It's been 18 years, all right? Why would you throw it all away? See, that's what I'm saying. Well, the same is true of any sin, all right? You can't kill any sin categorically. You can kill temptations that come from that sin today, but you can't kill that sin as a category, such as pride, carnal anger, bad driving habits, you know, things like that, all right? Yeah, you, you can't, there's no, none of them you can put the big red X on and say, I know that one is dropped out of the whole approach. Satan will never use that one again. You can't. You got to stay vigilant on all of them, especially the ones you've sinned in in the past. But what you can do is gradually weaken them so that they don't trouble you as much as they used to. The longest it's been, the longer it's been, sorry, since the last time you fell in that specific area, the weaker the temptation, the pull will be in that area. See what I'm saying? Now, it's not one-to-one -one correspondence because Satan isn't following the script here. It's like, oh yeah, I'll show you. you know, and he can ramp up some temptations in a specific area. There's an intelligence behind what he does. But I'm saying in general, you can weaken the, those temptations so that you would no longer be a slave to sins. That's one verse, Romans 6, 6. Romans 6, 7. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm trying here, guys. I'm trying. But here's the thing. I don't, I don't want to fly through. I could just read the chapter and say, let's pray. You know, the point is you need good teaching. And, and the, the fundamental idea here is don't you know or you have to know these things. So you have to know that you are, you'll never be in sin's kingdom again. You've been set free from that place. You don't have to sin in any category ever again, ever again. And by the way, it's a very, very powerful concept. I remember some time ago, my wife and I were having a warm discussion about some topic. It was very, very warm. What'd you call it? Intense fellowship. It didn't feel like fellowship at that moment. But at any rate, um, and I will say honestly, you remember I said about Peter a couple of weeks ago that Satan can take us captive sometimes? to do his will. We can say things we shouldn't say. And we get, we get kind of lubricated up through anger and adrenaline and all that. And you can say, but I remember one particular time, just it, this, the truth of this just came to me. Like, wait, I don't need to sin anymore at all. Like right now, I can cut this thing off. Yes, I've been sinning right up until this moment, but I don't have to sin the next moment. I can stop literally right now and be, start behaving rightly. I don't have to coast down now. Got to wind down, do about five or six more littler sins, and then one or two little ones at the end, and then trail it off and then start turning the oil tanker around. I don't have to wait for the oil tanker to turn. I can stop sinning right now. I can start saying kind things and loving things and true things, etc. Literally right now. This is actually a very powerful concept. You don't have to wait to not sin. Because frankly, all the sinning you've been doing has just been a lie, a deception, and stupidity. I would go so far as to say insanity on your part. So why keep being stupid and insane? Stop it. So this is a very powerful concept. At any moment, you can stop sinning. Conversely, if you don't, you can't say to God, you know I couldn't help it. It's like, well, why don't we read over Romans 6 again and tell you? You could have helped it. You can't blame anyone but yourself. So it's, your, it's on you. So you have been set free from sin. You're not a slave to sin. That's powerful. That's powerful. So that's what he says. Anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Verse 7, he's very clear about this. Verse 8, now he died with Christ, we believe we'll also live with him. So it's not just negative, stuff you're not going to do. There's a whole new life that you can live now by the power of the Spirit. For we know, verse 9, that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over it. It's decisive. Nothing more that death can do. You remember when Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body and after that there's nothing more they can do to you? So think of the Gestapo torturing somebody, an operative, let's say they caught, and they're doing the most hideous physical tortures, and then suddenly the person's dead. There's nothing more they can do to that person. But Jesus says, fear, those who, fear the one who, after death, has the power to destroy both soul and body in hell. Fear him. That's God. Well, aside from the teaching on hell and God's judgment, 
basically, once you've died, all of that can't touch you. That's the logic here. You're beyond the power of sin and death now because you died with Christ. It's decisively ended now. Like, man, I told you Romans 6 is a pure chapter. It's like, is this, could this actually be true? It actually is true of you. You are dead to sin and never need sin again and ought never to sin again. So that's what he's saying. It has no mastery of him. Imagine, I mean, think of that. We are taught in the book of Hebrews and other places that when Jesus ascended to heaven, he was seated at the right hand of Almighty God on the throne of glory, right? Imagine sin and death sending a summons to Jesus to come down off that throne of glory and come down here and die again. Impossible. He's not going to be stupid or insane. He's not coming down off that throne. Death is done with Jesus. You can't touch him. That's the logic here. That's how beyond, beyond anything we should be. We have been seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. We should think of ourselves that way. I'm getting already to verse 11. But the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Now we get, in verse 11, to the first command there is in the book of Romans. The first one. I've said this before. Look it up. You don't need to. I already did. Romans 1, there's no commands. Romans 2, no commands. Romans 3, none. 4, none. Bunch of doctrine. Doctrine, 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 doctrine. Now we have the first command. And what is it? Someone tell me what the first command in the book of Romans is. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. Okay, that's pretty important. If that's the first command, what does it mean? What does it mean to count yourself a certain way? What does your translation say? Consider yourself. Consider. All right. Count. KJV gives reckon. I reckon so. I always think of a Western... All right, what does that mean, Wes, to count, consider, or reckon? It has to do with our thinking, the way that we think about ourselves. Mm -hmm. I'm jumping way ahead, but I think of Romans 12, where it says to not be conformed mm -hmm. uh, to this world, but to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. So it's a new way of thinking about ourselves in light of what he's just said is true of us. Okay, so he first tells us that if we've been baptized into Christ Jesus, we're baptized into, into his death, so we are dead with Christ, dead to sin, and alive with Christ to a new life. He's told us that. But now what does verse 11 tell us? Think of yourself that way. We already told us it was true. Yes, I know. Think of yourself that way. That's the first command in sanctification. It all comes down to how you think about yourself. If you don't know this about yourself, if you don't get the doctrine right, Satan will come with deceptions and you'll fall into it. You'll think you have to. One of the things Satan does, especially with habitual sin, is tell you it's no use. Sooner or later, I'm going to have you. I'm going to get you back. I'm going to pull you back into that pattern. So you can do what you want for a week or two, but sooner or later I'll have you. That's a lie. That's a lie. And you can tell that you are lying to me. I don't ever need to sin in this area again, ever. As a matter of fact, I'm free from sin in every area. I am dead to sin, but I'm alive to God in Christ Jesus. So you're supposed to think of yourself that way. How would you do this practically? How could you become more robust in obeying verse 11? I'm going to think of myself, think of myself, think of myself, think of myself as dead to sin, alive to God in Christ. How do you do this? Memorize the verse. Okay. Memorize Romans 6.11. Okay. This also like taking every thought captive to Christ. Yeah. I think so. Well, I tend to think of that because what would you take captive in, the, in a battle but an enemy? So these are enemy thoughts. So I would think those would be temptations. So take those temptations captive to Christ. So yeah. So I would just commend um, prayer. All right. Quiet time. Like literally pray this to God. Say, God, I thank you that I am dead to sin and alive to you in Christ. I thank you that therefore I don't need to sin at all today. I could actually resist every temptation that comes my way. And I should do that. So Lord, would you please help me to understand that, to think that way, and that when the temptations come, I can tell them no. Because that saying no to that temptation will weaken that category. But you have to start with knowing that you can do so, that you have the authority to tell that temptation no. All right, so we're out of time. Wes, would you close us in prayer, please?
Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.